Hi, I'm Paul Haverschrud, host of The Cost of Living. It's a show about money and how it shapes our lives. In big ways, like why inflation could get worse if we all make more money. Here's the hard truth in all of this. Workers are going to have to eat that real wage loss. And small ways, like what's the fastest way to order fast food? That first Big Mac that comes out of the kitchen is going to the drive-thru. Check out The Cost of Living. We're on CBC Listen or wherever you get podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hello, I'm Peter Armstrong. And I'm Chris Howden. This is As It Happens, the podcast edition. Tonight, Legacy Admissions, a U.S. diplomat who accompanied the late Henry Kissinger on his secret trip to China, defends the powerful one-time U.S. Secretary of State, who many dismiss as a war criminal. Pipe Dreams, a doctor who helped expose the Flint water crisis, says a plan to potentially replace lead pipes across the U.S. makes her feel absolutely overjoyed. Call to action. Our guest helped get a new cross-Canada suicide prevention hotline dialed in and is proud and relieved that help is now just three digits away. More care for kids in care. A rising number of youth connected to Alberta's child intervention services are being injured or even dying. The director of a nonprofit says that is and must be preventable. The penny refuses to drop. I'm talking about 11-year-old Newfoundlander Grayson Penny, who spent weeks hunting and calling for a missing kitten, and now everyone's glad the cat had his tongue. And the penny lane drops. Nearly 50 years ago, with a little help from his presumably equally drunk friends, a student stole a sign from Liverpool. And now, after all that time in his ears and in his eyes, or uh, just the eyes, I guess, He's decided it's time to return that sign for Penny Lane. As it happens, the Thursday edition, radio that's off the Beatle path. To some, Henry Kissinger was a brilliant diplomat and tactician. To others, he was nothing less than a war criminal, responsible for the deaths of hundreds of thousands of innocent people. And it's unlikely that you don't have an opinion about the former U.S. Secretary of State, who was one of the most powerful and influential figures of the 20th century. Mr. Kissinger died yesterday. He was 100 years old. He was a Jew whose family fled Nazi Germany when he was a child. By the time he had graduated from Harvard, it was clear that he was ambitious. What wasn't yet clear was how much his ambitions would change the world. He helped broker a relationship between the U.S. and China, eased relations with the Soviet Union, and negotiated a ceasefire in Vietnam. But his critics say those same ambitions resulted in unconscionable carnage in Cambodia, East Timor, Chile, and Bangladesh. Here's how Henry Kissinger described his approach to foreign policy. I don't believe that you can conduct serious foreign policy today without moral concern for the people since that is the ultimate purpose of foreign policy. However, on a day-to-day -day basis, you have not only to proclaim your principles, but to implement your goals. And therefore, in, every, in many individual cases, you have to combine your moral convictions with what it is possible to do within a given framework. 
Winston Lord is a former U.S. ambassador to China. He traveled with Henry Kissinger on the secret 1971 trip to Beijing. We reached him in New York. Winston Lord, I'm very sorry for your loss. I wonder how you are remembering Henry Kissinger today. Well, I remember him with great affection on a personal level and great admiration on a geopolitical and international uh, level. A uh, sense of melancholy is, is uh, flooding in now. But uh, I have always been very fortunate to have worked so closely with him. You were on that famous trip in 1971 to Beijing. Can you just paint a picture? I mean, given the stakes involved, what was the atmosphere on the, on the plane ride over like? Well, we were going secretly from Pakistan, where we were visiting publicly as part of a broad trip. And, of course, it was incredibly dramatic. Here we were about to launch a geopolitical earthquake, meet the Chinese for the first time in 22 years, meet Zhou Enlai. So as we were going through all these emotions, Kissinger was ranting and raving about the fact that his staff assistant had not packed any good shirts for him. He wanted to look good. <laughs> and he borrowed one from a staff who was much bigger than he was, that he went around looking like a penguin, but, and the shirt had a label that said, Made in Taiwan. <laughs> oh, my. So that was the, the amusing part. Now, on a more substantive note, we were going for two reasons. One, to explore with the Chinese whether there was enough mutual interest to overcome two decades of hostility and move ahead on a new relationship. This was not assured, and that's why the trip was secret, because we weren't sure it was going to work out. And then secondly, if that were the case, the negotiator communique announcing the trip. So we accomplished both of those in 48 hours. The agenda sketching between Joe and I and Kissinger introduced me to hundreds of hours of those fascinating talks. And it was clear that the Chinese needed something on Taiwan, but not something we couldn't give. We, in turn, wanted to improve relations with Moscow by opening up with China, getting Moscow's attention, getting the Chinese help uh, on ending the Vietnam War. They wanted to break out of the diplomatic isolation and balance the Soviets as well. And it's fair to say, through the president's trip later in February 72, each side accomplished its main objectives. You know, in doing these kinds of interviews, we, we try to think about the broader picture, and, and there is no more complicated broader picture maybe in the world, certainly not in the world of diplomacy, than Henry Kissinger, uh, with those who deeply admire him and those who, who will straight up say he's the most notorious war criminal in American history. In your mind, is the legacy of Henry Kissinger a complicated one? Not for me, uh, but obviously for many observers. Look, the man had flaws. I had disagreements with him. Any great man is going to have uh, defects. But to me, the overwhelming legacy is and should be positive. And one reason I'm a little melancholy today is that I read some of the obituaries and commentary. And, of course, there's a flood of praise from leaders around the world. But every time you mention an accomplishment, you've got to mention a defect. And then there's a viciousness and a revision of history in certain areas that really, it seems to me, is unfair. How did he look at it? Did he feel any need to justify his legacy or the, the way history would judge him? Oh, yes. That was, that's only human. And he constantly did that. So he 
was very sensitive to criticism. Uh, see, the thing that bothers me is that <clears throat> people forget the 1970s. When we had the Watergate crisis and Nixon had to resign, we could have fallen apart and our foreign policy would have lost all steam. And he single-handedly, with his credibility and distance from the Watergate issue, held this country together, of course, with President Ford above all helping. His helping to steer us through the constitutional crisis is his greatest achievement, on top of the well-known ones of the opening of China, arms control and detente with the Soviets, Middle East shuttles, and ending the Vietnam War, all of which I was privileged to be part of. And those those laudable accomplishments were offset by, I mean, I think it's the Yale historian Greg Grandin estimated that Kissinger's actions from 1969 through 1976 contributed to the deaths of between three and four million people. Well, that's just insanity. I mean, I, I, let me, uh, I'll give you two canards and criticisms. And again, I'm not here to say it was perfect. We disagreed on the balance between geopolitical and, and value, uh, both of which had to be in any foreign policy, uh, but he always paid attention to both, but we would have a different emphasis. But I'll give you quickly two examples of where I think revisionist history is distorting his legacy. One is the so-called secret bombing of Cambodia. The facts are that the North Koreans extended the war into Cambodia by occupying it, as well as Laos, coming over, killing American and Vietnamese troops and retreating to safe havens. And so we bombed strictly those bases along the border, and we did it with the explicit approval of the leader of Cambodia, Prince Sihanouk, so it was secret because the leader of the nation whose borders we were bombing with his approval wanted to be kept secret. The other one is that the Vietnam Peace Agreement, which we negotiated and I helped to draft, could have been achieved three years earlier with needless suffering. The Vietnamese, North Vietnamese, insisted that not only we withdraw from Vietnam unilaterally, but that we overthrow the Saigon government on our way out. But we weren't going to overthrow an ally and destroy our credibility around the world. We negotiated very hard, and we only made a breakthrough when they dropped their political demand. So it's wrong to say that we could have had this agreement sooner. You know, when you look around the world today, I, I think you can draw an awful lot of similarities to the global situation, whether it's in the economy or a, a burgeoning Cold War with conflicts erupting in the Middle East and uh, with Russia. When you look at that and think about the life and times of Henry Kissinger, what lessons do you think we can take away from both the celebrated and vilified parts of his life? First, we have to acknowledge that today's world is, of course, completely different than the 1970s. Having said that, a couple of principles of... Uh, Kissinger do apply, it seems to me, and we can apply them, for example, to the Middle East today. One is, in any crisis or negotiation, keep in mind what your end game is, and then work back from there to what your immediate steps are. For example, in the Middle East, will there be a two-state solution? Who's going to rule Gaza? And not just the immediate uh, security or hostage situation. Secondly, you need to be firm at times with your interlocutors, but this should be done privately if you have a tough message. And I think that's probably what the Biden administration is doing with Netanyahu, where they're very supportive in public, but probably delivering some candid messages in private. So uh, I do think the role of 
human rights is more important than ever, and that's something that perhaps could have been applied more in the 70s, but most of the Kissinger approach of strategy uh, and patience and having the pieces fit together, whether it's countries or issues, is still uh, relates to today. Well, Mr. Lord, we'll leave it there, but I, I really do appreciate all your insight into this. Thank you so much for sharing. Well, my pleasure. Winston Lord is the former U.S. ambassador to China and former special assistant to Henry Kissinger. He's in New York. Mr. Kissinger died yesterday. He was 100. For years, if you found yourself experiencing a mental health crisis in Canada, there were any number of numbers you could call. Some might say too many numbers, many of them 24 hours, most of them toll-free. Some were regional, some national, some also offered texting, but not all and not at all times of day. But now there's one, 988, a simple three-digit number people can dial or text without charge from anywhere in the country. And Al Raimundo says that single number will save a lot of lives. Al is a mental health advocate with lived experience of navigating Canada's suicide prevention system. They consulted on the development of the new helpline, and we reached them in Pickering, Ontario. Al, if I call or text 988, what will I experience? When you call and text 988, you'll experience getting a message just explaining a little bit about what 988 is and asking you what language you would like to receive services in. So you can choose English and then French. And then once you've made that choice, you'll be put into a wait. And then when somebody is ready to chat with you, they will either, you'll either hear them talk or they'll start messaging you over text. The wait so far, in my experience, has been about five minutes or so, but it really depends on what else is going on and, and who's available at that time. Why is the fact that there is now this single three-digit number so critical? I know what the experience of being suicidal is like, uh, being in mental health crisis. And I know how much work it just takes to keep living and keep moving forward when you're experiencing a mental health crisis. And one of the experience, one of the things that becomes much harder for me is being able to remember numbers and remember 10 digit numbers. So having something that's three digits, that's easy to remember is going to be a lot easier for me to recall when I'm in a crisis place. Um, it's also going to be super helpful to just know that I have one phone number that I can contact and that somebody will be there who knows how to support people who are experiencing thoughts of suicide or being in a mental health crisis. I think the other thing that's really exciting is that anybody anywhere in Canada can, can reach out to 988, that it's always the right place to reach out to and no one's going to turn you away. And that's really exciting because for me, especially since so many new services have launched um, in the last couple of years, it can be really confusing. This service also offers 24-hour texting, which is new. Why is that so important? Texting is incredibly important because not everybody has a safe place to take a phone call. Not everybody has a quiet place where they can um, where they can have a phone call. So having the texting option means that people who are maybe in unsafe home environments or live in really noisy environments, can still access 988. I know for me, I didn't always grow up in a place where it was supportive for me to reach out, so this would have been really awesome to use right. when I was younger. I think the other issue that comes here is some people are just more comfortable with texting. I know 
myself as a millennial, like it's the place where I feel the most comfortable in how to express myself. And I also feel much more comfortable being vulnerable, especially with a stranger over text messages than I would be over the phone. Can you tell me, if you don't mind sharing some of your own experiences about trying to seek help in a crisis? Yeah. So in two times in my life, I experienced mental health crises that I tried to reach out to a to a crisis line. First, I was 13 and everything in my brain was telling me that um, I wasn't worth reaching out for help and I wasn't, um, and even if I did, they couldn't help me. And that one little voice in my head that said, maybe it's worth trying. Um, I, I tried to Google things. I tried to look stuff up and I didn't, I wasn't able to put the right words into the search engine to find a service at that point. So it it was so much easier at that time for me to do nothing. And I ended up um, attempting suicide because I wasn't able to access support. Many years later, when I was in my 30s, I was diagnosed with breast cancer. And I again found myself in mental health crisis. But what was different this time is I had worked in mental health for 10 years. I Googled the services, but then was met with an overwhelming amount of, of crisis line options. And none of them fit and 100%, but none of them also didn't fit 100%. Mm-hmm. And again, it was easier to do nothing um, than it was to get the help. And so that I, from that experience, I really wanted to be part of the community member advisories to co-create 988 so that finding the service is easy, reaching out to the service is easy, and the folks on the other end know how to support people through feeling suicidal and having mental health crises. You know, in the existing system previous to this, there's all kinds of, as you say, long numbers and it's it's patchwork across the country. It depends on where you are, what help you're seeking. And it's obviously important to have this this one kind of streamlined, easy to find and use system. But what happens to all those other services that are out there? Will it mean there are less of those that specifically for women or for LGBTQ or indigenous callers in specific regions? So 988 is actually a partnership from 30-plus organizations. So those existing organizations are some of the folks who are responding in 988. They are some of the folks picking up the phone calls, taking the text message conversations across the country. And I think the existing crisis lines will will stay the way that they are. There'll still be lines specifically for queer young people. There'll be lines specifically for women. And any of those other demographic-specific groups are still going to exist. But there are also, so many of them are also feeding in and supporting 988, which I think is amazing. What would your message be to someone who's who's, who's feeling vulnerable uh, and maybe experiencing suicidal thoughts, but, you know, they're they're not sure that this is for them or that this is the right way to do it. What's your message to them? My message to someone experiencing suicidal thoughts is just to try 988. There's no issue that's too big or too small. You're worth reaching out and trying to see if this will be something that will be helpful for you and that these folks have supported so many people through mental health crisis, through feeling suicidal, that they may have some interesting perspectives and the, or at the very least holding space for you to become calmer and more peaceful and figure out what your next steps are. I I would say just to try it, just to try it and see. And, and you know, if it doesn't work for you, that's okay. But it, it's definitely worth giving it a shot. Well, thank you for sharing all of this with us. I know it can still be difficult to talk about. And I, I, I think it's really important, though, to get this message out there. So thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. I'm so happy to 
have uh, chatted with you about this. Have a great day. Thank you. Al Raimundo is a mental health advocate who consulted on the development of Canada's new 988 hotline. We reached them in Pickering. Callers to the previous Talk Suicide Canada number will now be redirected to the new service, which is available nationwide 24 hours a day and also offers texting. And it arrives three years after Caribou Prince George MP Todd Doherty tabled a motion to create a single three-digit number in 2020. In September 2022, Mr. Doherty was a guest on As It Happens after the CRTC approved the hotline. He talked about what inspired him to call for it. I lost a good friend of mine, one my best friend, when I was 14. Um, I was the last person to see him. And, you know, all these years later, you, you know, you carry so much guilt. You know, um, I've said it before that the people that are left behind have so many questions, the if-onlys. You know, if only I would have known, if only I could do that night over again, if only I could just tell my friend that uh, my world, our world is a better place because he's in it. If only you could just say, listen, I'm here to help. Or, you know, if only there was a, a simple three-digit number for somebody to call for that. And, you know, I've worked with at-risk youth and in suicide prevention and crisis intervention. I feel so fortunate that people have shared their trusted me enough to share their stories with me, but that trust comes a responsibility in my mind that you you want to ensure that you're doing whatever you can to break down the barriers. I got, two, I got a number of messages, but one was um, from a lady that said, you know, my husband took his life in June, and maybe if this number was there, maybe my kids would still have their father, and whew, maybe um, I'd still have my husband, or... You know, I got a me- another message from a lady whose son died by suicide in May, and, and she said, you know, maybe this would have helped. Conservative MP Todd Doherty speaking with As It Happens guest host Katie Simpson in September 2022, after the CRTC approved a single three-digit suicide prevention hotline number for all of Canada. That number is now live, and if you or anyone you know is in crisis, it is easier than ever to remember. Just dial or text 988. We've all been there. You're young, you have a bit too much fun and way too much to drink, and you're suddenly convinced a thing is the funniest and coolest thing you can do. So you do the thing. You steal a famous street sign. Maybe we haven't all been exactly there, but a lot of us have been in the vicinity of there. So you can kind of understand the actions of a group of students in Liverpool, England in 1976, actions that would never have been undertaken if it hadn't been for this song. At the time, the Penny Lane street sign was literally in their eyes, and they wanted to hold on to the moment. So they held on to the sign, and they swiped it. And it remained lost for the following 47 years, until Mary Chadwick got an email. Ms. Chadwick is the manager of the Beatles Story Museum in Liverpool. We reached her there. Mary, you got this email earlier this year, out of the blue. What did its author tell you? 
Um, yes, we received an email in March 23, um, and it just basically said that he had a Penny Lane Street sign that he stole back in 1976, and he wanted to return it to the city and wanted the Beatles story to have it on show. <laughs> Did you believe it at first? Um, no, we we actually thought it was a wind-up, um, so we reached back out via email just saying, lovely to hear from you, we'd l- love to know a little bit more about this gave us some more detail and he was like well what I'll do I'll post it back it's in pristine condition um, and it needs to come back to the city where it belongs <laughs> you thought it was a wind-up do you get a lot of those kinds of emails saying oh I have it it's been in my basement for years um we don't get an awful lot but just because of it, it said 1976 and 47 years ago we thought really if someone had that in their possession for that long um, and we right. thought we'd get something through the post that replicated um, the street sign, but it definitely, definitely, when we received it, was the original street sign. So it was just crazy. Did he give you any sense as to why this change of heart had come about? Well, basically, we have a football team here called Liverpool Football Club, and he's a massive Liverpool fan. Um, and they played a game in um, against Man United, which is a local rivalry club. And um, Liverpool won 7-0. And basically he'd said that made him come forward and <laughs> give the street sign back because he felt um, that was enough to make him do that. So you reach back out to him. You confirm this isn't a hoax. This is actually happening. I suppose then you've got to reach out to the city. How, how do the mayor, how do the city staff react to this? Well, we emailed the mayor's office and just basically gave them the background and he's a massive Beatles fan, and he was like, no way, let me see it. So um, we, we got it over to his office, um, and he took a look at it, um, reached out to Liverpool City Council, um, who verified that it was actually the street sign from 1976. So he was really excited to have it back as well. That's amazing. For, for anybody who hasn't been to Liverpool and gone to take the requisite photo along the Penny Lane area, uh, can you just give us a sense of what goes on there throughout the year? Um, yeah, it's an it's a area just outside the city centre, so it's a suburb area. It's where Paul and John used to take buses um, to and from school or to each other's houses. And there's an area there where, where they used to meet in a bus terminal it's got like a barber shop. It has um, a, a church, so it's very much a lovely area. So when you come to Liverpool and you do go on a magical mystery tour, you visit Penny Lane, right? And um, it's just it's just about Paul's childhood memories, really, of of being in that area as a young child. And it's not very it's not changed very much. It's still very pretty, right? Uh, you live in Liverpool. The, the the place is kind of steeped in Beatles lore and Beatles history and legacy. Have thefts like this, like, is this a fairly commonplace thing that, that happens? No, not at all. Not something that's been hidden for 47 years. No, I bet Normally not. Things, no, that are, that are generally on the market. Um, yeah, I've been in Beatles Story for 28 years. I started there in 1994, so oh, wow. I've seen things come and go over my time there. But to see this come, it was it was just the background of it being hidden and away for 47 years. It, it's just amazing. So if I go to Liverpool, can I go see the sign now? Yes, um, we're located in the Albert Dock, um, so it's the Beatles Story Museum. Um, and it just takes you through the story of the rise of fame of the Beatles, and we've got showcase 
some memorabilia, including now the Penny Lane Street sign, alongside John Lennon's glasses, George oh, wow. Harrison's first guitar. It's very, very immersive and takes you back in time, really. The uh, the the police and the mayor mostly have said they're not going <laughs> to pursue any punishment for the thieves. But do do you think they'll ever find out who who was behind the theft? No, no, because it was <laughs> we are sworn to secret. I know, but uh, well, I know the the person's name, but I don't know where they live or anything like that. So um, we're not going to share that detail. We just wanted it back, and they have agreed. The city have agreed that they wouldn't be looking to press charges. They actually quoted, "Let it be." Well, look at you. Keep the secret for the, the rest of the days. We appreciate you <laughs> doing that for them and, and speaking with us today. So thanks for that. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks very much. Mary Chadwick is the manager of the Beatles Story Museum in Liverpool. That's where we reached her. From Chicago and New Orleans to Flint, Michigan, cities across the United States have struggled with the toxic effects of lead pipes. And today, the Environmental Protection Agency took steps to try to ensure that those types of water crises are a thing of the past. The EPA has put forward a proposal that would require water utilities to dig up and replace lead pipes nationwide. Dr. Mona Hanna-Atisha is a professor at Michigan State University and a pediatrician whose research helped expose the Flint water crisis. We reached her outside Flint, Michigan. Dr. Mona, as someone from a community that's seen the damage inflicted by lead in the water system, just how significant is this new proposal by the EPA? Peter, I am absolutely overjoyed. This is a really, really big deal. This is what we have been fighting for since Flint was uncovered to make sure that nothing like this happens again. And this rule guarantees that. Now, it sort of jumped out at me. Should I have seen this coming? Um, It kind of jumped out at me, too. Um, But it shouldn't be a surprise because we recently passed the Infrastructure Act, which included $15 billion to replace the pipes. So the money was there, but the mandate wasn't there. And this is the mandate to do just that. So walk me through the, the mandate. What are the parameters, if you will, of this proposal? Yeah, I think the um, the highlights are that it mandates the replacement of the vast majority of lead pipes over the next 10 years. Um, so this has never been part of any uh, regulation. Um, it is part of uh, Michigan's regulation. So after the Flint water crisis, Michigan adopted a really strong state-specific lead and copper rule, which mandated that in Michigan we replace our lead pipes within the next 20 years. Um, so this is kind of a little bit modeled after what Michigan was doing learning from our crisis. So the most important mandate is the replacement of lead pipes nationally over the next 10 years. Um, The next is that you are no longer allowed to do partial line replacements. Um, So there's a private side of the line and there's often a public side of the line. And, And when you only replace one of those, do a partial replacement, it actually increases the potential risk of lead exposure because it disrupts scale. It's often done because, um, you know, it may be cheaper or easier, um, but it, it, it can hurt children. So this bans the, the partial replacements, which is huge. It also improves the detection of lead in water. Um, but the, really the most important thing is mandating the replacement of all pipes within 10 years. 
that that partial replacement part is also well something of an obstacle that some municipalities are raising. The Association of Metropolitan Water Agencies uh, that represents some of the biggest public water utilities in the U.S. They say there's there's not enough money or technical help to get this all done. Is that a fair criticism? Um, yeah, there's not enough money. So you know the Infrastructure Act included this unprecedented investment in water infrastructure and pipe replacement, $15 billion, but it's actually not enough. There was more money that was in the Build Back Better bill, which never passed. So more money is needed to do the uh, the full cost of, of pipe replacements. And, uh, and unfortunately, a lot of those costs will be, probably get passed down to the utility payers. So, I mean, how do we close that gap or do we just have to face the fact that there will be areas that won't do it because they can't afford to do it all like it's a bit of a catch twenty two, right? Uh, yeah, I'm hopeful that the funding that was initially proposed right. does eventually pass. Um, that would close the gap. Um, but the last time I testified before Congress, that that was the concern. Folks were like, "How can we pay for this?" And my response, and the response from the EPA um, today with this rule, is that there's a cost to inaction. Us doing nothing actually is really expensive, and those costs are borne in the consequences of lead exposure in terms of decrease. IQ, decreased economic productivity, healthcare costs, uh, mental healthcare costs, criminal justice costs. So, um, you know, there's published papers on the cost benefit of pipe replacement. Um, and just in Michigan, it's a return of over $2 for every dollar invested. So we will actually save money, societal savings, if we do this work. And we, we saw that cost in Flint when you spoke to As It yes. Happens back in October 2015, I think, during the, the Flint water crisis. You told us then that the consequences that crisis would have on your young patients wouldn't really be known for years. Are we starting to see that impact now? Yeah, we are starting to see that. Um, so I run something called the Flint Registry, which tries to answer that question. We, we, you know, we try to see how the population of Flint is doing who were exposed to the water crisis. And we're seeing lots of concerns, lots of issues with stress, uh, mental health issues, behavioral issues for children. Um, and it's really hard to prove causation with most environmental issues because there's a time lag between when you're exposed to lead or other environmental contaminants and, and when and the consequences manifest. Um, but yeah, we are seeing issues. Um, and I wish I could tell a family that I care for, like, yes, this was because of the water crisis, but I can't do that. Right. Um, so that's why this rule today is beautiful. Folks from now on, once this is implemented, they can have trust in that glass of water that comes out of their tap, that that glass of water is not going to have something that's going to impact the health and development and the future of their child. That issue of trust is so key. And, you know, you, you come from a community that suffered so much, a crisis many blame on the government. And now here we are having to put our faith in the government again to address this issue nationwide. How how optimistic are you that these changes will come about? Yeah, I I am absolutely optimistic. Yeah, you know, Flint yes was a was a failure of 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 policy. You know, there's a saying that pediatricians are the ultimate failures to social policies. And I, I, I bore witness to that in Flint. My kids um, were failed by inadequate policies that didn't fully protect them. The rule that is being proposed today does exactly that. It protects our kids and it protects them not just today, but it protects the promise of our children. Dr. Mon, it's great to get you back on the show. I really appreciate this. Thank you. Thank you. Great to talk to you, Peter.
Dr. Mona Hanna-Atisha is a pediatrician and a professor at Michigan State University, whose research helped expose the Flint water crisis. We reached her near Flint, Michigan. Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced The Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of The Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at The Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart, and for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. A new report from Alberta's child and youth advocate has revealed that young people are dying on the province's watch. The annual report found 88 incidents of serious injury or death among children receiving intervention services in the province. That is the highest number recorded since the office began conducting reviews in 2012. Bradley LaFortune is the executive director of Public Interest Alberta, a nonprofit organization focused on education and advocacy on public issues in the province. We reached him in Red Deer. Bradley, the report from Alberta's Child and Youth Advocate found that 50 young people died while receiving intervention services from the provincial government. What was your reaction when you first heard that number? Uh, my initial reaction was was shock and, and horror, quite frankly. It's hard to comprehend. I, I think Albertans and people all over Canada have been pretty horrified to learn about the record number of deaths of you know children in care in Alberta, for sure. And I think the big question is how this could have happened. What do we know about the young people who have died while receiving these services? Right. So we know that there's a a lot of different types of services and care that, you know, children in Alberta um, have access to, um, including, you know, independent living, care homes, uh, also folks who are just receiving wraparound supports and services. So um, this is a pretty comprehensive system as, you know, the government of Alberta likes to call it, but it's a very fragmented system. So you have a lot of nonprofit providers, you have government providers, you also have other community groups that are doing support services. So it's um, at best a broken system that, uh, you know, obviously is, is failing kids in Alberta. And can you tell me, like, who, who are we talking about? What, what, who are the young people that have died? I mean, the first thing to note, and this is, you know, quite a shocker, although maybe it's not surprising, is that when we're looking at these numbers of, you know, 88 cases that have been uh, reported on either individually or with systemic reviews by the Office of the Child and Youth Advocate, 76% uh, identify as Indigenous. Um, And that's a massive overrepresentation of of the stats. So that's the first thing that really jumps out to us as a tragedy. There's also, you know, several children between the age of zero and five. And when you look at the details of some of those, you know, infants and toddlers who who died uh, receiving care or, you know, who were, you know, directly in care, it's things that are, you know, preventable and also could have been uh, avoided with, you know, proper access to healthcare services. And what are the like? What are the main causes of death for young people in the province? Exposure to substances is is a big one for for young kids. Um, so you know, fetal alcohol syndrome and you know other substances. 
sometimes it's you know fires there's a couple of instances in this report of of, of house fires um there's a lot of examples of you know people who um died by suicide uh as well um and you know that's you know directly connected to uh, a lack of supports and services in the community or by government i would say the big thing that jumps out for us is the lack of wraparound supports and services in the context of a big, scary drug poisoning crisis in Alberta. Um, that's a big thing. We're also in the midst of a housing affordability crisis. Um, so when it comes to adequate housing for folks, people are really um, starting to face housing insecurity in a big way that we haven't seen in my lifetime in Alberta. And it's not just a record number of deaths. Are the number of deaths increasing? The number of deaths is, is the highest on record since the office has been opened in 2012. So since we've been seeing these reports come out every year as a report to the legislature and to the public, this is the highest number that we've seen. But you're right, it's not just deaths, it's also serious injuries. And so we have, you know, a case of 88 that have been reported by the the Child and Youth Advocate this year. And it's really astounding that, you know, when you look at the recommendations within the report um, and previous reports, only four have been completed, according to the government of Alberta. They're saying 25 are actioned, but we don't know what that means, really, like how much progress has been made. I will also add, you know, when it comes to things like the Jordan's principle that, you know, needs to center Indigenous care and culturally adequate supports and services for Indigenous kids in this country, the government is falling down on it. There's a couple of examples that, you know, when you look at different First Nations like Cowessess First Nation in, in Saskatchewan and other First Nations that are partnering very, very closely with the provincial governments to make sure that culturally adequate supports and services are available to Indigenous kids. That's really something that we want to see the Alberta government look at so that we can turn the corner on these record numbers because it's, it's a lot of cases of preventable deaths and injuries. And that's that's the real key here for me is that we're not looking at, you know, cases that couldn't have been addressed proactively to save lives. Alberta's Children and Family Services Minister, Cyril Turton, uh, responded to the report, and he said, I'll quote here, the safety and well-being of children in the province is one of his highest priorities, and another one that, quote, the death of any child in the province absolutely rips my heart open. What do you say to him in response? Well, I mean, it, it, it should rip all of our hearts open, and this is maybe a little bit, you know, more crass, but this government needs to put its money where its mouth is. Uh, we are defunding harm reduction. We are defunding children's services. This government has moved, I believe, in 2020 to reduce the age for eligibility for financial supports for youth who had been in care from 24 to 22 years of age. So when I hear the minister say that, you know, the human response is obviously nobody likes to see these numbers because these aren't numbers. These are real kids in Alberta who have died. But at the same time, if the government really feels compelled to respond to this report and these numbers and this crisis, then they need to put their money where their mouth is and also get round the table with uh, Indigenous partners, uh, especially in urban Indigenous communities, First Nations, other nonprofit organizations who really understand the nuances and the needs of children in care and start funding those organizations again so that they can get out of the way and you know, let the people who know what they're doing do the real work. All right, we're going to leave it there. But Bradley, I really appreciate this. Thank you. Okay, thanks, Peter. Take care. That was Bradley LaFortune, the Executive Director of Public Interest Alberta. He's in Red Deer.
Grace and Penny just had a gut feeling, a feeling that propelled him out onto the streets of Gander, Newfoundland, and Labrador day after day, week after week, until finally his mission was complete. A few weeks ago, the Gander SPCA received two kittens whose mother had been killed by a car. There was a rumor that there was a third sibling out there, but no one had found it. So 11-year-old Grayson began his search. He told the CBC how he found the kitten. Well, when I was going out, when I was walking with my friends, um, or one friend, uh, I was going, we were going for a morning walk. And when we got to the top of the hill where it was, uh, the cat stared me right right in the eyes and he started meowing and I got and I was filled with excitement and joy and so I went and I tried to get him I uh, touched him I almost tried to grab him but I uh, touched him I skinned him and uh, it didn't um, I didn't catch him and he put himself uh, between a rock crack and I called my dad and he couldn't get him out so um, I went and got cat food, and this lady came by uh, that worked at the place by it. She loved cats, and she saved its two, uh, its two, its brother and sister, and another cat. Um, she caught it and put it up for me to get and bring it back and save it. And what does it feel like then in that moment when you realize you found him and that you really saved this kitten's life? I felt really happy and excited that I saved this kitten's life, and I'm sure he was grateful. That's amazing. Grayson, um, any updates on the cat now? I, I understand uh, it's doing quite well, but any uh, updates on maybe its adoption or anything like that? It's adopted. Um, it uh, got adopted a few days ago, um, and it's in really good condition. Um, he's eating well. He's sleeping. He's uh, playing. He's doing everything that he wasn't doing when I had him. That was 11-year-old Grayson Penny speaking with Martin Jones, host of Newfoundland Morning. For weeks, tensions have been mounting along the border between Finland and Russia, and now they seem to have reached a boiling point. As of midnight last night, Finland has officially closed the last of its land border crossings with Russia for at least two weeks, effectively sealing off the country's eastern border. The Finnish government says the drastic measure is simply a response to what it sees as a, quote, hybrid warfare tactic by their neighbor. It says Russia has been driving refugees and migrants to the border as a tool to create pressure on Finland. Meanwhile, those asylum seekers are caught in the middle. Anno Lettinen is the executive director of the Finnish Refugee Council. We reached her in Helsinki. Anno, as of today, what will people reaching the border at these closed checkpoints be told? It seems that at the moment, the sort of the border area is actually relatively quiet. So there have been only a few individuals, if, if any. But if people are arriving at the border, they will be told that the border is closed and they they cannot enter and of course they will be then if they are willing to sort of leave and indicate that they are willing to leave for example asylum application then they are giving guidance on on where and how that could happen and at this moment the only available options for leaving asylum now that the border is closed uh, would be the airports or the ferry points but of course, in practice, if you are coming from the eastern direction from Russia, there are no flights, there are no ferries right. uh, moving. So in, in a sense, that's 
that's the closed border also from that perspective. Many of the closed border crossings were pretty remote areas. I mean, it's getting minus 20 degrees Celsius. Can you just give us a sense of the kind of journey that someone would have to take to end up at the the border? Um, Of course, it's evident that people arriving at the border have been uh, getting assistance on the way uh, when they've been arriving at the border because, as you said, it's a very remote uh, area and not easily accessible. And, of course, we've seen that many have been arriving with bicycles and it's clear that people have not been using bicycles uh, arriving from from the lengthy distance. So it's clear they've received assistance and uh, whether it's taxis, whether it's... um, authorities assisting them, whether it's uh, smugglers assisting them, but in any case, um, they have been arriving closer to the border. That evidence that they're getting assistance is kind of the the key piece of all this. What is it that's happening and why is it such a concern? Well, of course, it's evident that uh, people have people have been assisted. And of course, it's also evident that there has been a change in the way uh, Russian authorities and the border authorities are looking at the situation. So, of course, and the reason why the border is now closed is a response to organized activity and a hybrid operation. And of course, when we are looking at uh, the actual arrivals, the actual asylum seekers and migrants, the individuals themselves are not posing a threat, but rather the sort of um, sort of organized activity assisting large numbers of uh, migrants uh, and potential asylum seekers on the borders that would then pressure Finland internally to enter disputes, debates on potential uh, correct actions forward. But in the end, this is quite a unique decision at that, I must say. The fear here is that the Russians are taking asylum seekers and just putting them up on the border with Finland. Have I got that right? That is true. And of course, it's also true that getting a visa for certain nationalities to Russia is suddenly much easier than it has been before. So of course, there's also this type of um, assistance. I mean, you're the head of the Finnish Refugee Council. Do you think this move by the Finnish government is justified? This move, of course, comes with, from the perspective that every every government and every nation has has a right to sort of control and secure their borders and manage also irregular movements, but at all times in accordance with international obligations. And of course, Finland should at all times try to guarantee and safeguard the right of those seeking international protection uh, in line with the uh, European and international law. And this is, of course, something that at a current moment in time is not happening. Uh, however, of course, this is a temporary measure. This, is, this has a two-week duration. It's going to uh, last until 13th of December. And also the sort of uh, decision uh, when it was made indicated that if there were clearly vulnerable people, children, uh, elderly, disabled, victims of human trafficking, these people would still be accepted. All in all, great concern over the people who might be at the uh, border area. And uh, again, this is is Finnish winter and this is a very up north uh, situation. Indeed. I think it's one thing to express great concern over the people that will be turned away. But I, I, I still do wonder, do you think this move by the Finnish government is justified in your mind? 
it is very difficult to say in the end because um, when this decision was made, there were there were sort of surveillance information that was used uh, used as a sort of um, grounds for this decision that remains classified. So we don't know everything, but I would still say that the right for asylum is a is a very strong strongly documented human right in several international agreements, and of course this present situation is not in line with Finland's uh, international obligations. And it's it's also at the same time a real reality that among these people who have been arriving, we've seen nationalities like uh, Syrians, we've seen uh, people from Yemen, we've seen people from Iraq, we've been seeing people from Somalia, and these are nationalities that have tra- previously been granted asylum in Finland. So many of them will are people in real need of asylum and protection. On the one hand, groups like the UN's Refugee Agency have said this endangers the fundamental right to asylum. On the other hand, we don't have the access to the intelligence the Finnish government has said led to this decision. When this measure does expire on the 13th, what do you hope happens then? Of course, uh, of course, I do hope sincerely that after two weeks, the, the situation is such that this border closure ceases, ceases to exist and Finland returns to normal and, and begins to accept asylum applications again. Uh, whether that will be the case remains to be seen. And of course, uh, even even at that time and even now, we are really looking at a vast border with Russia. It's 1,340 kilometer border border that Finland has with Russia. And and it, it's not just the sort of formal and official border uh, crossing points that are now closed that are of a concern. But I think bigger concern, of course, is that people begin to use their vast forest and, and sort of desert uh, wilderness uh, area to try to cross that, of course, increases greatly the dangers in these harsh conditions. Well, Anna, we have to leave it there, but really appreciate your insight on this. Thank you. Thank you. Anna Lettinen is the executive director of the Finnish Refugee Council. We reached her in Helsinki. Whether you can admit it or not, you had pretty much given up on the golden mole. Uh, Don't feel bad. We all had. The small, sneaky mammal was last seen in South Africa in 1937, and the global conservation group Rewild put the golden mole on its most wanted list of lost species. So we didn't want to believe it was extinct, but in our hearts, a lot of us had moved on. The golden mole was gone. Until it was there again, glimmering in the sand dunes of northwest South Africa. Kobus Turan is the manager of the Endangered Wildlife Trust, a nonprofit conservation organization. He was also the project leader on the hunt for the golden mole. The findings of that hunt have been published in the journal Biodiversity and Conservation. We reached Kobus Turan in Cape Town. Kobus, can you describe the golden mole for me? Yeah, so golden moles are subterranean creatures. Uh, they're fairly small. 
they're blind um, and they've got uh, iridescent fur coats. Um, so the light really bounces off them in a, off them in a very beautiful way when uh, you know when they're exposed to light. They are small creatures, but they're incredibly uh, they've got incredibly strong abdominal muscles and also um, very very uh, strong forearms, if you want to call it, or front limbs, and that allows them to move uh, in loose sand uh, fairly successfully and fairly fast as well. Um, and very little is known about them because they spent their entire lives underground. Um, there are 21 species in Southern Africa, of which six are uh, uh, threatened or endangered. And so um, they're really a, a group that's really in, in trouble in many ways. And we need to learn about them rapidly so that we can conserve them better. And have I got this right? They hadn't been seen in almost 90 years. We hadn't seen one. So the specific uh, golden mole we're referring to here is called De Winton's golden mole. And uh, yeah, I believe it was last seen in 1937, wow. or nice, last scientifically in 1937, last scientifically observed. And, and so if you haven't seen something since the 1930s, what sparks you to say, hey, let's go looking for these again? Well, so because of the threat status of the golden moles, we uh, looked at where we should be looking for uh, species that need conservation action. The challenge was up. Can we find this uh, De Winton's golden mole, which is presumably or is believed to be critically endangered or presumably extinct? And that's what we set out to do. So it, it's subterranean and it, it digs in a, a way that's different than normally we would imagine. So how does one go about finding these things? So fortunately for us, um, they, their burrows are quite shallow, so they do leave trails on the top of dunes, and this is specifically, you know, also in, in sandy environments. But because golden moles all look the same, you know, you need to actually do a bit of deeper investigation to distinguish the species from one another. And there's only a handful of people in our country that can do that successfully. And so, you know, we, we had to start looking at novel techniques or new approaches to study them more rapidly and to get more accurate identifications. Did, did you, you must have felt at some point, like this is just a wild goose. I'm not going to make the wild mole chase. But yeah, at some point, did you think this was futile? Um, I, I never did, but I do know that, uh, you know, for me, for me, it was always a challenge that we were going to meet as impossibly as it would seem. But um, people were skeptical. I'm, I'm not going to lie. And uh, we put in an enormous search effort. We searched along the entire west coast of South Africa in multiple, multiple sites. And uh, yeah, you know, eventually the, the hard work and, and the long hours paid off. Wow. This this program has a certain affection for these kinds of stories. As it happens, has done all kinds of pieces on rediscovered wildlife, species that people are still looking for or arguing about. The, the, the ivory-billed woodpecker is a famous one. So with that in mind, tell us a bit about the feeling of, of rediscovering something that we we really did think might be lost forever. Yes, absolutely. I think, you know, to start off with, I think that we have so many doom and gloom stories about the environment and about conservation and just our, our human impact on the planet. And so for me, can we go out and can we rediscover something and can we bring excitement and positive stories back so that, you know, that we, that we bring a story of hope to the fore. And for me, this little 
dune-dwelling mole is really a story of hope. It it shows us there's just so much potential left, you know, that and, and so much opportunity for conservation left, especially in South Africa and Africa, and I presume some other parts of the globe. It's just a fantastic privilege to have been involved with my colleagues in this uh, specific endeavor. And, uh, you know, when eventually we realized that we had rediscovered this specific species and we had confirmed it through genetic testing, you know, it, it was just fantastic, absolutely fantastic. Did, did you leap for joy? Did you call somebody? What did you do when you found out? So, yeah, no, look, we basically used two techniques to um, to locate them. So one, we were using scent detection dogs, which we are piloting to see whether or not they can help us find the correct species faster. And then the other technique that we relied very heavily on was uh, environmental DNA. So basically, creatures shed DNA when they are, uh, you know, in contact with the environment. And through very sensitive analysis, we can pick up that DNA in soil and we are able to then identify the specific species that shed that DNA. And so it just so happened that while we were collecting samples on a specific beach, we also managed to stumble across one of these golden moles. They, they, wow. One can find them um, if you're extremely patient. And that did occur. And it was just, yeah, people people were bouncing. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> <laughs> I bet. I bet. Uh, now, this is great news, but Endangered Wildlife Trust has said the gold mole is threatened by new development, the diamond mining that's nearby. How worried are you for this creature's future? Yes, so the west coast of South Africa is under immense development threat, uh, both from mining, from the residential developments, and also from agriculture. So the part of our project was to first uh, see whether or not we could find these moles, and, and now we know that we can do it very successfully and quite efficiently and then it's to start looking at which sites uh, do they occur in in sufficient numbers where they're viable populations and then to actually look at how do we conserve these uh, moles uh, where they occur and what are the strategies that we'll employ and uh, you know um, as much as there are threats so there are also opportunities and we will pursue those well congratulations on your finding and thank you so much for sharing all this with us today fantastic thank you for your time and for your interest Kobus Tehran is the manager of the Endangered Wildlife Trust, a nonprofit conservation organization. He was also the project leader on the successful hunt for the Golden Mole. We reached him in Cape Town, South Africa. On Walmart's website right now, a bag of Pacific white shrimp is going for about 10 bucks. There are estimated to be 80 shrimp in there, so that's about 12 cents per shrimp. Now, let's say you had $15 million lying around and all you wanted to do with it was buy so much sweet, succulent shrimp. That $15 million would buy you about uh, 125 million shrimp. You could grill them, batter them, ceviche them, poach them, make cocktails with them, put them in smoothies. The possibilities would be endless because when it comes to shrimp, there are no limits, unless you're Red Lobster. This year, the restaurant chain learned that trying to endlessly satisfy shrimp shrimp lovers can put you in the hole, a hole worth 125 million shrimp. 
In an effort to attract more customers, Red Lobster expanded its ultimate endless shrimp promotion so customers could order it all day, every day, which they ultimately and endlessly did. According to the trade journal Restaurant Business, which first reported on this, on a recent earnings call, the CFO of Red Lobster's parent company said the chain had suffered an operating loss of $11 million U.S. in the third quarter. That's about $15 million Canadian. And that shrimp promotion was one of the, quote, key reasons. The company has since raised the price on the deal, and it is presumably rethinking the hot tip it shared in an earlier press release that you should avoid grabbing the extra biscuit to leave room for endless shrimp. You've been listening to the As It Happens podcast. Our show can be heard Monday to Friday on CBC Radio 1, following the world at 6. You can also listen to the show on the web at cbc.ca slash AIH. Thanks for listening. I'm Peter Armstrong. And I'm Chris Howden. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.